Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of uh, talking to uh, Ramin Ganeshram about her book, Saffron, A Global History, which was published in 2020 by Reaction Books. Uh, Ramin is a journalist, chef, and cultural historian based in Westport, Connecticut, and is the author of The General's Cook, a novel, as well as a number of cookbooks. Ramin, thanks for accepting my invitation, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start off, uh, Ramin, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you uh, ended up as a uh, you know, researcher of food or writer, cultural historian? Sure. So, you know, my background, it really starts with my parents. My mother was from Iran, from a, from a town called Kermanshah in Iran and, or at least it was, I think the name is different now, but, and she came to the United States where I was born uh, in the sixties. In the and my father was from the island of Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. So uh, really for me, and in the time that I was raised, it wasn't like now where people were very much encouraged to explore their cultural heritage and their ethnicity and speak you know, their mother tongue at home and for us, really, it was the food that kept the culture together, the, the dishes that my parents cooked. And often, as happens with food, when they cooked and when they put these dishes on the table, they would talk about their families, they would talk about their culture, they would talk about the history of the places that they were from. And so for me, from a very young age, the connection of these two things, food, and culture and history was very cemented together. And I think that what happened is my career sort of was always kind of gently veering in that direction until it, it, it ultimately became my job to look at these things. Um, thank you, Ramin. Um, so your book is published as part of uh, Reaction Books Edible Series. And for those listeners who don't know about Edible Series, uh, it's a series that focuses on the global history and culture of uh, one type of food or beverage in each of its volumes. And your book, Ramin, is on saffron, 
Why saffron? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I love this series. I've been a reader of it for, for many years, you know, as long as it's been published. And uh, I've worked with the editor before. And in kind of talking about what was missing, uh, for me, I always thought it was very strange that there was not a book about saffron because being half Iranian, saffron is a part of our daily life almost. I mean, we use it constantly. And um, so actually at first I didn't really think about it. I thought, you know, it was just an everyday ingredient. It would be like writing a book about salt, which I think they've also done. But um, it, it, I realized that how, how interesting that it's a relatively unknown ingredient, uh, particularly to Americans. And that's why I wanted to write about it because it's, there's so much more to it than people think. They think of it for the color, but there's so much more. And that's why I really wanted to bring that information to, the, to readers. Um, so could you give us a light version, a very you know, brief version of the historical background of uh, saffron as you discuss in your book? I mean, where does it come from and how did its history evolve throughout uh, what I assume must be centuries? Yeah, not only centuries, millennia. So um, saffron uh, is a, a type of crocus. Mm -hmm. And it comes, it grows in uh, the, it's called the autumn crocus. It grows in, in the fall or it should be harvested in the fall. And it's native to the wild version is it's native to the Mediterranean and specifically to Greece. And it was from there that it traveled um, to Iran and to um, other parts of the world with Phoenician traders. This is almost 3000 years ago. It was in Iran that actual cultivation of uh, wild saffron happened. It was the it was the Persians who really figured out. Okay, we can grow this essentially like a farm. We can domesticate it and really ramp up the production. And through the silk routes, which were more than one, you know, people often talk about the Silk Road, but there were there actually many many routes over land and sea into India, into you know Kashmir in the north of India, into Europe and so on to Africa. Um, saffron traveled based from Iran largely, and also through the Phoenician traders, still trading both the wild and now the newly harvested saffron from Iranians um, all over the world. And that's how it moved and continues to move, right? There are uh, uh, places all over the world now that traditionally are not thought of saffron growing regions that are attempting to grow it. Um, and how did it find its way? I mean, you, you talked about, you know, how it's found its way to other parts of the world, but um, how did it find its way to the North uh, America and, uh, and the Caribbean? Yeah, so the way that saffron really came to the United States and to the Caribbean was through what we call the Atlantic trade, right? So this is the trade routes that were set up uh, when the colonies of North America and the colonies of the Caribbean were created by European powers, England, Spain, France, and so on. And like any luxury good that was um, able to be imported, um, saffron also was imported, but very specifically, it came to the United States um, through a family of saffron growers um, who were uh, German. And there was actually a very established saffron growing um, collective in Germany since the Middle Ages. And they brought it to Pennsylvania. 
And they started growing it in Pennsylvania in the 18th, in the late 17th and into the 18th century. And they were actually called um, the Gilderdeutsch or golden Germans because of uh, saffron, because they were saffron growers. But more largely through this Atlantic trade route, the triangular trade route that went between Europe and Africa, the Caribbean, North America, back to Europe, and, and also multiple cr crisscrosses of that system, saffron moved uh, as a luxury item, uh, especially into the, in the Americas. You have to understand that the plantations, both in the Caribbean and in North America, um, some of the larger plantations, you're talking about in immeasurable wealth. So they could afford saffron. And they imported it just like they did their Madeira or other things. And um, uh, we are talking about an, an ingredient uh, that has, as you said, uh, that, that has been in existence at least for uh, 3,000 years. And with any uh, kind of food items with that history, um, the, the, it is safe to assume that there was or there has been some, you know, uh, other uses for it, like medicinal use, or um, you know, any use apart from culinary use. Uh, so, mm -hmm. is that the case with saffron as well? I mean, apart from culinary uses of saffron, are there any other aspects or any other field in which uh, saffron was or perhaps is of significance? Yeah. So, so since antiquity, um, saffron has really been understood very clearly um, to be equally, as you said, culinary and medicinal. Um, Alexander the Great, when he when he you know conquered Iran and saw how much saffron was used, um, he adopted it for himself. He would bathe in a bath of saffron water and encourage wow. his men to do the same thing um, <laughs> to heal lacerations um, on the body. And and we now know that saffron, in fact, does have antiseptic policy, uh, um, properties that it is an antiseptic, it can clean wounds and so on. Um, another use for it, and, and you know, the ancient um, uh, medical people, the ancient doctors of Rome and Greece, you know, wrote extensively about its uses, uh, you know, to cure ailments of the eye uh, for, is one uh, use that you see often. But the most common use that saffron has been suggested for throughout ancient texts was actually as a mood enhancer to help with depression, to help with low spirits, um, to kind of perk up uh, one's energy. In fact, in the Middle Ages um, in Germany, we have an account of a group of nuns, uh, one of whom uh, was from a family of saffron importers and saffron growers as well in Germany. And this uh, group of nuns, you know, would keep uh, big piles, sort of bunches of saffron in their pockets during the, the seasons of the year where they were expected to do a lot of prayer, like Lent, for example. Um, and it was, and they would smell it to kind of wake themselves up and keep their spirits up when they were exhausted from praying around the clock. What's interesting about this is um, now researchers, largely in Iran, there are um, a lot of scientific um, you know, studies, funded studies that seem to indicate that, yes, it's an antidepressant. It does have antidepressant uh, properties. Um, so this is a kind of a follow-up question, Ramin, but, um, you know, um, uh, considering everything that you said about saffron being an antidepressant, uh, can one overdose on saffron? 
That's, you know, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I remember years ago reading a report that um, of a community in the Middle East, and it was not Iran, that, um, that had extensive liver damage from overuse of saffron. The thing is, I have never been able to find that study again. So in my research, I didn't find any indication of that, but that's not to say that one couldn't. I just, I simply don't know. Um, that was the story that I, I remembered most clearly, but I could never find that again. So I yeah. really couldn't say. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a, a kid, my mom always told me, you know, don't eat, uh, don't eat uh, too much saffron. It's bad for you. But I really don't know. Um, if it was because, you know, saffron was really expensive and we couldn't right. afford much of it, <laughs> uh, right. was, was it, you know, was really some, some truth to it. Um, so, um, fast forward to, to, to modern day, what is the modern market of saffron today, Ramin? Who, who is producing it? Who is consuming it? Who is emerging as a, you know, producer or consumer? Right. So the biggest producer of saffron in the world is Iran. Um, often uh, other regions that are known for saffron, I'll give you an example, Spain, for example, they're really buying Iranian saffron and, and marketing it as Spanish saffron. Uh, Iran does produce the most. Um, and it is, you know, saffron has grades, uh, different levels of quality. And, um, you know, uh, the, the best grade of, of saffron is certainly in uh, Iran, although the kind of premier saffron now, not really now, but uh, for some time is really the Kashmiri saffron, um, that which is grown in Kashmir. The issue with it is that there's a lot of political upheaval in mm -hmm. Kashmir. And so a lot of it is not being produced and therefore it is um, more and more and more expensive, but it is really a beautiful, beautiful saffron that comes out of Kashmir. But, you know, Iranian saffron is, is um, the lead, it's world leader of saffron. Um, now we're starting to see production in places, or we had seen, started to see production in Afghanistan. Uh, I don't know what'll happen with that, but surprisingly in other parts of the world, like uh, North America and Canada, places that are not normally thought of um, as suitable for growing saffron. Um, but in fact, uh, you know, I, I also understand in, in, in New Zealand, there's some saffron growing. Um, Australia, there's some saffron growing. Um, there's a lot of experimentation. And by the way, in the Middle Ages, saffron was grown in Europe. Um, in fact, there is um, a town in England called Saffron Walden, and it's because the town produce so much saffron during the Middle Ages. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and you also include a guide at the end of the book, Ramin, which I really liked on how to buy saffron, where to buy saffron and, you know, stuff like that. Why is that? Is it because there is a lot of counterfeit or something? Yeah, there is a lot of counterfeit of saffron. And in fact, um, you know, the counterfeits can re re uh, relate from anything from, uh, safflower, which is a kind of flower that grows in um, Central America and in, in, the, in the Southwest of the United States. And it does resemble saffron a little bit. Um, and it's often sold as saffron, but, but it is not. Um, it, you know, saffron doesn't have a designation the way, let's say, a wine region might. 
right? Or a cheese region might. And so um, people can call almost anything saffron. Uh, I'll give you an example. In my father's country of Trinidad, uh, turmeric is called saffron, not with an intent to um, uh, cheat anybody. That's just what they call it. Um, But of course it is not saffron. So there's a lot of counterfeit saffron out there. Um, For example, um, corn silk that has been dyed with food coloring um, is sometimes sold as saffron. Uh, I've read things about finely sliced onion skin uh, sold as saffron. So it was really important for me (laughs) to give, yeah, to give people um, a guide so they know that they're really getting what they pay for. And I want to say that the counterfeiting, there's, there's actually a very quote unquote good reason for it. And that is Saffron remains the world's most expensive spice. It has always been the world's most expensive spice. It's comparable per ounce to the price of gold, right? So you can understand why people um, who may not want to be on the straight and narrow would want to um, sell saffron, fake saffron and, and make money off of it. Um, for those listeners who are not you know, familiar much with saffron, could you also tell us why it is so expensive, Ramin? Yes. Yeah. So um, as I said, it comes from um, a crocus, a plant, the the autumn crocus. Um, It's very similar to the crocus that you see in the spring, the small um, purple little plant. That's one of the first ones that come up in the spring. It's not that one. It looks very similar, but this one grows in the autumn and it has very large uh, stigmas, those orange threads that come out of the middle of the, the flower. This is a very delicate flower and it can only be the saffron, which is the stigmas can only be harvested by hand. On top of that, it can only be harvested in a very small window of time. So it's usually, you know, like in North America would be around November, early November, where it's not too, too cold yet. And as soon as the dew in the morning um, dries up, then you have to quickly harvest it because the stigmas can't be wet when they're harvested, and then they have to be immediately dried in order not to get moldy. So this is a very laborious process. And these threads are so thin and so light that it takes, you know, hundreds of them to come up with, you know, just a gram or two grams, something like that, you know, so it's very, it's very laborious. And that's where the expense comes in. Uh, and at the end of the book, you also include some recipes, uh, you know, with saffron. Where do these recipes come from? Is there a story behind them? Why did you particularly choose those recipes? Well, some of the recipes come from um, my family, right? My, my mom's family in Iran. Um, there's a recipe in there that I really like, a couple of recipes that come from a lady who is from the community where the Gilderdeutsch in Pennsylvania, the, 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 the golden Germans or the golden Dutch here in the United States, we call them the Pennsylvania Dutch. They're not Dutch. They're German. There was a misunderstanding of the word Deutsch meaning German. Um, There's, you know, a couple of um, recipes from that community as well. And then I wanted to include some recipes that are really classic, classic saffron recipes like arancini, which is a, you know, Italian risotto rice ball um, that has um, 
that has saffron in it. So I wanted to span some personal things, some things that are unusual and people don't expect. And then those things that people really think about, yes, that's a saffron recipe. And uh, I believe one of the um, kind of questions that you uh, must get quite frequently is that uh, whether there is a substitute for saffron. Yes, and the answer is no. <laughs> there is no... <laughs> There is absolutely not any substitute for saffron because it's not just the color. It has a very particular smell. It has, it does have a taste. It has its own taste. Um, you know, it's an, it's a unique taste that is not reproducible. Um, and if you know that taste, you know that, um, there's nothing in the world that tastes like it. I mean, if you're only looking for color, I mean, I guess you could use food coloring or possibly turmeric, but um, really that's not why you would be using saffron. It's a whole experience. Um, I have a friend and I write this in the book, the, the food writer, Monica Bidet, and she says, when people say to her, what should I substitute with saffron? She says, don't make the dish because <laughs> there is no substitute. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that, Ramin. Mm -hmm. um, and there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But uh, before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask uh, whether you're working on something right now, Ramin, or are you thinking about uh, doing a research on a particular topic in the near future? Yeah, so, you know, the topic that I'm really, really becoming interested in, you know, I kind of have two two paths in my work. You know, I'm a public historian. Um, as a historian of American history, I focus very much on the 18th century and the lives of um, enslaved people, particularly cooks. Um, that is a very, um, that's my expertise area. Um, but personally, as, as a chef and a, and a food writer and a person of you know, multi-ethnic descent in America at this time, I've been thinking a lot about diasporic cooking, people of, of a dias diaspora and how their food um, evolves. So there's two books or two paths of research I'm really looking at now. One is related to, actually they're both related to my, to my father's heritage. One of which is um, a book about the Caribbean diaspora and really understanding the fact that the food of the Caribbean is, is unique island to island and it's very diverse. Although people tend to not think of it that way. The second is that uh, some of my father's family, a good portion of my father's family was of East Indian descent. Um, and East Indians are the largest uh, non-resident ethnic group of any ethnic group in the world, meaning that more uh, there are of, of immigrants living elsewhere outside of their quote-unquote home country, um, East Indians comprise the largest number. So um, some of my father's great-grandparents came to Trinidad from India. And the food in Trinidad is very, very influenced by uh, the substantive East Indian population. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, this idea of places all over the world that where there are Indian immigrants and what has happened to the food? How has that influenced the food, uh, both in terms of for the immigrants themselves, the evolution and the impact on local food waste um, in the area? So. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot lately. That's really exciting. I can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Uh, anything else to add or any further comments, Ramin? Um, you know, I think the only, the thing I always say to people about saffron is that 
Um, people are afraid of it, right? Because it's expensive and they feel like, oh, you know, if I buy it and I spend all this money and then I don't use it correctly, that's a lot of money that I wasted. But the thing is, um, there's a lot, it's, it's a, it's easy to use if you know how to use it. And um, it's, a, it's a very clear process. It's not complicated and it really does enhance dishes. And I would encourage everybody to try it if they can, you know, within reason, within their budget, it's certainly worth trying, especially if you count yourself as a, an adventurous cook. I encourage everyone to read your um, guides to buy saffron before uh, going and <laughs> buying saffron. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Ramin, for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too.